0: Hi, I'm Chris McKendry. Welcome to Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. In this last episode of Equal Play, we're going to dive into the issue at the heart of this podcast, equal pay. It was more than 50 years ago that the original nine shifted American sports fundamentally with their activism. In 1970, these women were playing in tournaments where they earned one-fifth of what the male tennis players earned, and they had enough. Brackets down, they quit the tournament and worked together, creating their own circuit, which eventually became the WTA that advocated for equal pay. That fight ignited a movement far beyond tennis. A whole generation of women athletes would follow in their footsteps, pursuing equality and recognition. One of them is Rebecca Lobo. Born in 1973, just nine months after the passing of Title IX, Rebecca started her basketball career as an NCAA champion for UConn, where her unbeaten team won the 1995 national title. She went on to become one of the first players in the WNBA, where to this day, a battle for fair pay and proper accommodations is still being waged. How to advocate for fair pay is so important for young women everywhere and extends beyond the world of athletics. For the last part of this episode, we'll be joined by the head of JP Morgan's Initiative for Women on the Move, Sam Saperstein. As a leading executive, Sam and her team focus on entrepreneurship, career skills, leadership, and financial literacy. She'll give us tips on how to navigate your finances and push for equal pay in the workplace. And we'll also discuss what needs to shift on a societal level for us to achieve gender parity. As we celebrate 50 years of equal pay at the U.S. Open, we'll hear from these two who continue the work of the original nine by advocating for equal pay. And we'll learn how much more work we have to do. Let's get into it. Well, on this episode of Equal Pay for All, I can think of no one better than the great Rebecca Lobo, who has seen it all since the 90s and the explosion of team sports in the U.S. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me. No, thanks for having me. We've been talking about tennis and 50 years of equal pay at this year's U.S. Open, the anniversary. It's also a big anniversary in October, 50 years since the arrival of Rebecca (laughs) Lobo on this earth.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I got a big birthday coming. My husband keeps saying, you know, it's uh, and I wore number 50 throughout my career. He's Mm -hmm. like, 50's turning 50. You know, what are we going to do? And I am not a fan of surprise parties or big (laughs) parties. I'm like, well, I know what we're not going to do is you are not going to try to uh, get me a surprise birthday party. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But it is amazing.
0: 50 years, also 50 years of Title IX. And it really put American team sports for women on the map. It gave us wonderful opportunities as youngsters to play team sports. What were your experiences from an early age?
1: Well, you know, I've often referred to myself as a Title IX baby because it was passed in '72. I was born in '73, and uh, I am 100% the age of women who really benefited from Title IX. And so much of the success I've had in my career is a matter of timing. 1995, our team wins the national championship right when the media and fans are ready to embrace it. And then 1996, Olympic team wins a gold medal. And then 1997, the WNBA starts. If I had been born five years years earlier, the trajectory of my my career would have been completely different, completely different. I am so fortunate to have been a product of the times that I was. And that being said, it was still, you know, when when I first signed up to play basketball in my small town of Southwick, Massachusetts, I think I was in uh, third or fourth grade, signed up to play in Park and Rec, and uh, the people at Park and Rec called my mom and said, you know, we're sorry, only two girls signed up. There's not a girls team for Becca to play on. And I'm lucky to have the mom that I had because she said, no, you just have to let Rebecca play on the boys team. And that's what I did. But the following year, there were enough girls to have a girls team in our town. And, and now, you know, as I've watched my daughters grow up and we live in a town now that's about the same size as the town I grew up in. And there's enough kids at every age level, enough girls to have multiple teams and, and to have a whole league. So to be able to watch kind of the impact that Title IX has had, and we hear it a lot about it in universities, but um, how it's trickled down even into youth basketball from, you know, 40 years ago to today is uh, is really gratifying to see. It is. And you know what I love? That the young girls playing today, they have no idea that
0: it shouldn't be any other way. It, you know, to them, this is normal. They have teams just like the boys. And uh, I know I personally, I just love seeing that growth.
1: It's a totally different world, and, and I've seen it a little bit through the eyes of my kids. Uh, my oldest daughter, who is now 18, I'm mean, about to start her sophomore year in college, but when she was about five years old, I was traveling. It was March Madness. I'm on the road covering women's basketball, and and of course, because of my job, I watch a lot of women's basketball. It was on the television a lot in our house, and so I'm traveling, and my husband's home and uh, has UConn men on playing an NCAA tournament game, and my five-year-old daughter walks in the room, looks up, and said, are those boys playing basketball? and my husband said yes and she said, "Oh, I didn't know boys played basketball <laughs> too. It's a different world. They've grown up just in a different world and um how great for them." Yeah.
0: If the Yukon men have a good year, they're good like the women. <laughs> I mean, you you are part of a dynasty. Actually, you started this dynasty. Gosh, were you a darn good ball player! (laughs) I mean, that team in 95, you you guys won every game by double digits. You took the tournament title and it was just such, it was the start of something so magical. You know, a dynasty is so important in popularity of sports.
1: It was the first time that a team had gone undefeated since 1986. There was a, a different kind of media climate that was ready to embrace this women's team at UConn. Our location certainly was helpful, you know, in the backyard of ESPN. We had a beat writer from the New York Times covering all of our games. And it was a team that I think was easy to like and easy to fall in love with because, um, you know, it wasn't a perennial power yet. Back in 1995, this is a team that had been to the final four once before as a Cinderella in 1991. You know, so we were a group of women who really, really enjoyed being around one another. I think you could see that on the court. We loved playing basketball. You could see that. And when we were embraced in a huge way, and it's interesting because it kind of started in Connecticut, our games were, were carried on CPTV, the local public television. So everyone had access to it. If you didn't have cable TV, it, it didn't matter. If you had a television, and, the, <laughs> and in those days, if the TV had an antenna, even, you could watch our games. And so everyone had access to it. And it felt like at the time, everyone in the state was watching it and following it. And then winning the, the championship just brought the whole frenzy to an another level. Along the lines
0: of, of a dynamic leader and a, and a personable leader and someone who never shied away from the cameras, much like Billie Jean King. And that is important. You had Gina Auriemma. How critical was his role of championing your team, never leaving for a men's basketball program and
1: continuing to just produce champion after champion. Uh, Incredibly important. I mean, he is such a charismatic personality. He never is a boring interview, not only being the best coach in the history of the women's game, winning 11 championships and somebody who certainly changed my life. uh, He he is an incredible coach. All of the women he has coached over the years, all of the young girls he has inspired because of the teams that he has coached. And, uh, you know, women's basketball certainly um, owes him, uh, you know, an incredible debt of gratitude. Would take us internally uh, inside the program.
0: So here you have your teams winning titles after titles, generating great interest, generating a lot of revenue. How were you treated as far as facilities compared to the men's game?
1: Once I got there, incredibly well, incredibly mm-hmm. well. They had just opened Gamble Pavilion, which is where the team still plays, maybe two years before I got there. The women played all their games there just uh, like the men did. Our athletic director, Lou Perkins, um, was a champion of, of women. I felt like we were absolutely treated on an equal level uh, with the men. They may have chartered every uh, to every one of their away games. We didn't charter until maybe once or twice my senior year and then to the national championship. That, of course, changed the following season. But the way that the teams were treated, and I have to give the uh, athletic department and the administration a, a ton of credit for that. And I'm sure it was because of women who came before me fighting for those things or or from Chris Daly and Gina of the coaches uh, who are still there and associate head coach Chris Daly fighting for those things. But the women's program certainly is standard bearer there now. Granted, uh, you know, the men are just coming off their national championship. But the women have 11 of them and have had a sustained level of success like we've never seen in women's college basketball. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the gold
0: standard for women's team sports on a collegiate level, without question. UConn, you had a great rivalry with Tennessee. Yes. And as we know in tennis, especially in women's tennis, and Martina, greatest rivalry in sports. Having a rival also is
1: exciting for the fans and attracts a lot of interest. Well, without question. And my senior year 1995 was the first time UConn and Tennessee had ever played one another in women's basketball. And so when we matched up in the regular season, it was a one versus two matchup on Martin Luther King Day. ESPN was covering the game. It was really a big deal for women's basketball. And then for those two teams, and of course, Tennessee was the standard bearer. They were the a Goliath of that day, you know, multiple national championships. They had Pat Summit, the greatest coach in the history of the game to that point. And then for our two teams to match up again that year for the national championship. Then the following year, UConn and Tennessee met in an overtime game in the national semifinal. And you had the foil of the personality that Coach Oriama is, and then the the different personality that Pat Summit is. uh, And they would go back and forth without question the rivalry of those two programs helped elevate the game of women's basketball in a big, big way. Then you get to the NBA and take me to the early days. I mean, some
0: of the listeners probably don't realize how New, still, even in this day, the WNBA is in comparison to the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL. It's only 27 years old as we speak. You were there in the very beginning. So you come from UConn where, you know, everything is the best it can be for women athletes and you get to the WNBA. What were those early days like in the
1: transition? I think because all of us at that time had grown up without women's professional basketball, there had been leagues that had started, but nothing that had succeeded, nothing that had had any longevity. I think all of us, more than any other feeling, we're grateful. We were grateful that we had an opportunity to play in this country because for years, women had been going overseas. There were leagues in Italy and Japan and Spain, and, and that's where the women would go. They would leave their family, leave their loved ones, and go play overseas. And so I think everyone was just grateful that we had this league. But also, because it was backed by the NBA and David Stern and Adam Silver and that whole group, they did not want this thing to fail. So they put a lot of resources into the league, in particular, leading up to that first year, the marketing campaign we got next, we got next, we got next. It was everywhere. If you were watching an NBA playoff game that year in 1997, you were seeing WNBA players promoting the league. All of the teams in those days were owned by NBA counterparts. I played for the New York Liberty. James Dolan, the owner of the Knicks, was the owner of our team. So that first year was interesting because, like, we were staying at the same hotels that the NBA teams had. Stayed at. We weren't flying charter; we were flying commercial. But other than that, like we were treated really well. There were a lot of fans coming to the games. It was new. It was exciting. It was different. We just weren't making very much money. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think the top salary in that early year may have, uh, may have been fifty thousand dollars five zero fifty thousand uh, dollars. We had practice players who, for the season, made ten thousand dollars. And if if you're living in New York City, ten thousand dollars how does that is, happen? Exactly is going to barely pay. For your expenses, we lived in the city. They paid for our lodging, and we practiced on the Upper West Side. And so they gave us all subway metro cards so that we could get to and from practice. But they had like figured out the exact number of practices and games, and that's the exact number that they put on our subway card. So it was a big deal. I think my second year in New York, we were able to get unlimited ride subway cards, so we oh, so we could also maybe go to the movies, uh, take a subway there. <laughs> But honestly, in those days, nobody was thinking like, "Man, the guys get this, and we only get this." You know, it was all a feeling just of gratitude. It was we we have this opportunity, and and that's where we've seen kind of the shift over the course of the twenty five years. Is all right, yeah, we're still grateful, but we now demand more, and and we've seen as the league has continued to grow, in particular over the course of the last few years, the women getting more and more of um, of sort of the pie.
0: Yeah. You know, you mentioned playing overseas and how a lot of women, that was their only option. And yet players are still doing it. You know, Brittany Griner, she was imprisoned in Russia. You know, I I felt like not enough people were asking the question, why is Brittany Griner in Russia? I remember when Diana Taurasi, you know, another fabulous UConn player, one of the greatest players to ever play the game, you know, took some time off and, you know, she brought to light, hey, I'm playing year round. For like a decade now, I need a break. Yeah. Do you
1: think too many women still have to chase dollars overseas? Um, it's getting better. It's getting better. But yes, and, and and sometimes that's just because the overseas offers are lucrative and they're a lot more lucrative than what the women can make in the WNBA. Part of that is because the season's much longer. The WNBA season is still a relatively short season. Uh, you're going May into October. And yes, I mean, there was one year where Diana Taurasi sat out of the WNBA because her Russian team paid her to. They said, it's more important for us because you're going to be back here with us next year. We need you to rest so that you're not tired when you come back to play for us (laughs) in Russia. And so it's a really interesting dynamic that you have on the women's side as a result of that. Again, the WNBA is doing more. They've allotted in the latest uh, collective bargaining agreement, there is more money for teams to pay players who choose to stay stateside and uh, do things in terms of marketing the team. For the top players, that still might be uh, considerably less than what they would make overseas. But at least there is that option now for the women who do not want to leave their families for eight months a year. And how about accommodations for the
0: WNBA? What needs to happen next as far as travel and making life easier on the players?
1: You know, the biggest thing that the WNBA players have been fighting for or asking for is charter travel. Because, you know, as we all know, we've all experienced travel delays. It can be really challenging. And especially for them, you know, they, they often talk about it being a health and safety issue because if they are tired, if they don't get the recovery and the rest they need, then they're putting themselves in a position to potentially get injured. Now the WNBA took a step this year. All playoff travel, I believe, it will be charter. Anytime the teams play back-to-back games that involves travel, the league is chartering them. That hasn't been the case in the past. I think you're not going to see a major shift there until the TV rights are up, which I believe is in two years. I think that's at the end of the 25 season, the WNBA's TV rights are up. And I think they're going to demand considerably more from the networks who, who air their games. And when they get that money, I think then finally it will be feasible for the the owners and the league to charter the women. But that's been the biggest thing that the women have been talking about since the last CBA. You know, progress is
0: generational. It's not necessarily one year after the next or one season after the next. And when you look at the age of the WNBA, it's kind of like the NBA in the early 70s, right? Like that's how old the league is. So there's progress to be made. And pushing the WNBA and the professional progress, I believe, is the college game. I mean, you know, you guys went prime time with that national title game, averaging 10 million viewers. I think it peaked at more than 12 million viewers. That was enormous. And now you have players signing six figures NIL deals, name, image, likeness. The college players are getting paid, Rebecca,
1: and they're not going to want to take pay cuts when they get to the NBA, that's for sure. Hopefully, you know, the progress that, that we're seeing on the collegiate side is going to help really drive what we're seeing on the professional side. And, and and you hear it a lot now, you know, the women's athletes aren't asking for anyone's charity. It is good business to invest in these women. They stand for something. I mean, we saw that in the WNBA bubble in twenty. 20- 2020. These women, in WNBA in particular, have a strong voice and they use it. And they are almost always, I would say always, on the right side when it comes to social justice issues and the things that they are willing to fight for, women's rights, black and brown rights. We we averaged 10 million viewers for that national championship game. Part of that is because finally it was on ABC. ESPN has done such an incredible job showcasing women's college basketball for all of these years. And then it's on ABC. But, you know, it was on ABC, I think, think it two o'clock Eastern or three o'clock Eastern so what's the next step all right ABC put it on prime time and let's see how many viewers we can get then and, and I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being where the game is played in 2024 so steps are being taken things are happening um and it feels Chris really like in the last maybe two or three years that this Boulder that women have been pushing for so long kind of up the hill when it comes to women's basketball is really about to start tumbling down and you you just feel the momentum. You see it in the TV ratings. You see it in the stands. You see it in the investment. Uh, yeah, the WNBA star yes.
0: game. Well, I mean, that was a huge success. Up close to twenty percent. Yes,
1: yes, it's there. People are interested. People are excited about it. And the level of play, whether it's college basketball game or in particular WNBA, you're seeing elite level basketball. Uh, yeah, indeed. I mean, that's something. You're right. We're we're not touching
0: on enough. Is that with each generation, the product's improving. You know, the, the game is improving. Do you ever look back, Rebecca, and think, wow, as much as you say, my timing was great. I can't imagine your timing in an NIL type of situation. Uh, you're very modest and and you continue to be the face and the voice of, of women's basketball for ESPN. But nobody was more popular in their college career at a certain time. And, and then you went to the NBA, you had your own Barbie. You had a
1: Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is which is really cool like ever since the movie came out right we won the national championship my senior year. And so as soon as my eligibility was over, I was able to benefit financially as a result of that. I was able to benefit by being on the Olympic team. I was able to benefit by by playing in the WNBA in the early days with the investors. I am happy for the kids now, though, that for a lot of years, they've been helping sell tickets and fill the seats. And now they are seeing some financial gain from that, in particular, people who don't have the resources where they can just call home and ask their folks for money, you know, finally an an opportunity to make money and to live a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. I love that they have that opportunity to be a professional
0: athlete for a profession, as opposed to, you know, like you're saying, you're getting paid 10 to $20,000. Okay. Maybe you can swing that for a couple of years and then you have to go get a real job. Right. Being a professional athlete is a real job. And it's nice
1: to see young women getting the opportunity to do that. Yes, 100%. The difference is, um, because of the way things are in the NBA and WNBA right now, and and I'm not trying to compare because there's a lot of different levels of money going into each of those, is that it is a job now for players, but it's not going to be the only job you ever have. You know, most likely if your career is five to seven years, even if you invest well, you're going to have to have something else um, once you are done playing in the WNBA. And so I, th- I think that's one of the reasons I, th- I still think it's a really good thing that players cannot leave school early the way the, the WNBA and the CBA is set up. Most of these women are still getting their degrees because there's going to need to be something after they're playing career. Career.
0: Yeah, well, to your point, NPR, a recent report, the nba base salary is $5.4 and the WNBA is $120,600. You know, that's a big discrepancy. Yes,
1: like the, the guys, if they're just like somewhat smart in terms of their financial <laughs> investing, um, they can play and then be done. And then if they want to have a career after that, they can. If they don't, they don't need to. The women are most likely going to need to.
0: What are you most proud of over the course of your involvement in women's team sports and especially basketball?
1: I think it's back to what, what I talked about, seeing my kids and the opportunities that they have. Little girls who go to Dick's to buy a, a basketball jersey can find their local WNBA team's jersey being sold. Um, the, it's it's a different climate. And, and not just for little girls, but for little boys too. I, I used to say this when I was playing, like it was super gratifying, of course, to see a little girl come up and, and ask for my autograph wearing my jersey, but it was just as gratifying to see the little boy wearing my jersey asking for my autograph. Because I was like, all right, so does this mean when he's at recess and they're choosing teams, like, does he think differently about the girl over there and and when he's going to select her? That kind of a thing. It's
0: time for My Two Cents. It's a segment sponsored by J.P. Morgan. At the end of every show, I take a moment to reflect with my guests and ask for words of wisdom. So, Rebecca, what do you
1: recommend to women who are just looking to join the professional ranks I think in everything that I've ever done in life, the thing that's benefited me more than anything is be a good teammate, be a good teammate, you know, work as hard as you can, of course, Uh, stand your ground when you need to, of course, always bring something to the table, of course, be a good teammate, because no matter what it is, whether it was I was on an actual sporting team or now working in broadcasting, I want to work with other people who are good teammates. And question two, if you could go back or just look back, is there anything you would have done differently? Especially in the early years of my professional career, like when you're an athlete, everything is sort of a singular focus on doing everything you can to perform at your absolute best, to go out there and win games, to be at your best when you're uh, when you're on the practice floor, I would have taken a little more time to appreciate everything that was happening. You know, I wish I had written a journal my first year in the WNBA and just taken it all in. You know, when there's 18,000 people at Madison Square Garden, really just looking around and appreciating that going to different events with other athletes in new york going to movie premieres like i wish i had just absorbed all of that and appreciated what it meant for the time in terms of women getting this opportunity rebecca lobo you're terrific thank you so much (laughs) thank you
0: That was my conversation with basketball icon and broadcaster, Rebecca Lobo. Next, we'll hear from Sam Saperstein, a leading executive who's developed strategies on how to advocate for fair pay in the workplace. Sam Saperstein head of J.P. Morgan's Initiative for Women on the Move. Sam, thanks for joining me on these very important conversations about uh, equal pay. And then what I hope we can also discuss is, great, when you have equal pay, do you know what to do with it? Financial Mm. literacy is another very important topic. So thanks for the time. Oh, thank you,
2: Chris. Great to be here with you. Why don't you tell me a bit about J.P. Morgan's Initiative, Women on the Move? Sure. So Women on the Move is our global diversity effort for women, where we support women inside and outside of the firm, which is very special and unique. I actually have a team of full-time people who are dedicated to helping not only our clients, but women in our communities and even girls do various things, whether it's start a business, grow a business learn about financial health, like we we're just about to talk about, and even grow their careers. So we get to work with women, really, at all stages of life on their financial and career prospects.
0: You helped launch this in 2018. At that time, Sam, what did you see was missing? And, and you know,
2: that you said, we need to address this in particular, So we saw the gaps still in women's representation in the workforce. We saw that women didn't make the same amount of money as men, didn't have the same financial wealth, and weren't raising money for their businesses. And unfortunately, those things continue to be true today. So we wanted to address the real gaps that we saw out in the market and among large employers. And so that's how this was born, out of those real pain points that we thought the bank was well-positioned to address. So it's been a five-year journey and a really great one where we've been working with women globally and reaching thousands of them, but more work is out there still that we need to do.
0: We're celebrating this year at the US Open, 50 years of equal pay, something Billie Jean King fought for also 50 years. She fought for Title IX. She fought for you know women and young girls uh, to have the opportunity to even just get started in sports or in music or in theater, whatever the boys were able to do, she wanted the girls to do. Of course, it has such a tight connection to sports. You were a young girl at that time as well. Did you see where Title IX played a role in your life?
2: I think probably the good news is as a girl, I didn't feel like I was missing out on any opportunities. So while I was not an athlete by training, I might have been a kickball champion, but aside (laughs) from that, um, I was able to do a number of sports growing up, softball, basketball, even lacrosse. Lacrosse was starting to become a lot more popular then, and we were able to do it just like the boys. So I think I was very lucky in that at that early age, I didn't perceive any imbalance. It was really only later that I started to see those things.
0: Yeah, I can agree with you. I felt the same way. It was actually doing research decades ago to talk to Billie Jean for the first time. When I really started digging into her story, did I realize she didn't have these opportunities. And I I did. I I didn't take them for granted. But you're right, I never saw an imbalance until you get into the professional world. (laughs) And both of us have spent our time in male-dominated fields. Tell me what it was like for you at the start of your
2: career. So when I started my career, I was in both journalism and business. Um, I was at another bank early on in my tenure. And probably it was at that bank where I started to really perceive the differences with men and women in the workforce. First of all, there just weren't very many women. So if there was a class of fellow analysts that I was joining, there was probably 20 out of 100 or so. And you really saw the difference as you continued on. There were not many senior women at all. And so when you looked up and you tried to find those mentors or people who were going to help you and take you under their wing, there just weren't many women doing that. But even the men, men weren't really doing that for the women. And so it was in that environment that I started to feel that lack of support even among clients that I was serving as well. It just was not a friendly environment for women. And so that's probably where I started to feel for the first time things were just not the same. It was not going to be a, an easy path and something needed to change if we were going to see women stay in careers and get to the top. What was inside of you that said I'm going to be one of the game changers? I was very fortunate being at J.P. Morgan five years ago when Jamie Dimon, our CEO, decided that the time was right to really have a full-time team stacked against this. He was a big believer in if you want something done, put people against it. And so at the time, we had different teams looking at our veteran population. We also had teams looking at how to help our black executives at the company, but we had nothing for women. And so even though I was in another role at the time and I was very happy, when I heard him talk about this opportunity, I really couldn't resist it. I think it went. Back Back to those early days, my early career, knowing that women had such a hard time and still were, that I wanted to do something about it. So I really jumped at that chance.
0: You know, there's a fascinating study, an Ernst & Young study in 2018, and I think it made a lot of people open their eyes. 94% of women in executive C-suites, so to say, position
2: are former athletes. Yes, it's remarkable. What do you think the connection is? I think sports teaches everybody but particularly women a few things that are key. One of them is practice, practice, practice. Be really good at what it is that you do. That kind of thing makes you desirable, makes you a great performer, makes you someone who wants others want on their team. So it's that practice and discipline. But I think it also teaches you how to lose, how to fail. Had to make mistakes, and get back up. So when you see athletes out there doing it again, making that other shot, jumping in the pool one more time, moving through risks and knowing they can rebound from them, that is so important because business is just a series of ups and downs. You will always be down, so to speak, at some point, at something. But being able to pick yourself up and get back out there and, frankly, be able to engage in debate and work with people who might not have the same perspectives as you I think all of those things are absolutely taught in athletics. And that's why you see so many women with that background. Yeah, I find it just fascinating. It's also
0: know how to be a teammate, right? I mean, be somebody people want to play with or work with. Um, And sports certainly teaches you that. Financial literacy, this is something that you're very focused on. And as we keep pushing for equal prize money and not just in tennis, equal pay for women across the board in sport, across the board in business, you know, let's not be everybody 75 cents on the men's dollar, you know, that that is too well known. But once you have the income and once you earn the big paycheck, what do you do with it? How do yeah. you teach women what to do with it to protect their future?
2: Yeah. And this starts early, as early as possible, even with girls. So I would say wherever you are in your career, putting money away early, saving what you can is critical, even if it's small it does a few things. One, putting away money early compounds. And so over your lifetime, you will see your money grow more if you put it away early than if you put it away later. And second, it's more of a habit that you want to build. So even if you're just taking out small amounts of a paycheck or saving whenever you get it, it really teaches you that discipline of doing it all the time. And this is so important for women. You know, number one, Women tend to make less, as you've referenced, uh, and there is a gap there. But especially as athletes, you make money in such a concentrated period of time. That's not necessarily income you're going to see your whole life if you're a competitive athlete. So being able to manage it when you have it and you're setting yourself up with that great habits is really important down the road.
0: What advice would you offer athletes who, to your point, they earn a lot when they're young, they're often surrounded by a lot of people. And, Mm. you know, when you're young, you think everything's going to last forever. There is a mentality of this will last forever. The train is here forever.
2: (sighs) How would you advise an athlete to protect themselves? I would start by talking to people around you, but probably also talking to other athletes and maybe others who came before you might be a little older and have had that experience. So, know what it's like to have money coming in, but that doesn't always last forever. So, understand what that might look like for you. I would also say to get an advisor, get a financial advisor who can really help you think about your goals And set those goals for yourself. What do you want to accomplish long-term with your money? You know, there used to be all those commercials around what's your magic number? How much money do you want to make over your lifetime? And I don't think many women feel like that. I think women have goals they want to save for retirement or a family or a home. And so when you have those goals in mind, especially goals that you can actually talk to an advisor about, that person can help you set yourself up for the future. And again, I would set aside some money to play with, have a great time with, but also know what you're doing with the rest of it to save for the future.
0: What advice do you have for women? We're talking to you know, women across the board. The WNBA right now is fighting not so much for equal pay with the men, but fair pay for their product and travel expenses and accommodations and, and such things. What advice do you have for women pursuing these sorts of situations in their workplace?
2: I think women have to start by knowing they have to ask. If you don't ask, you don't get. And we do actually teach women negotiations as part of managing their career and managing their compensation. So if you look at some of the research, many women do not ask or negotiate their salary when they come into a job, and many men do. So I'd say first and foremost, when you're going in and taking a new role— Negotiate that salary and ask for more than you necessarily expect to get, but actually go for more because you will never get more if you don't ask. And don't take that first offer because not many men do. That's first of it. Second, as you're going through your career, it's great to have data points as to how much people like you make. You can talk to friends. A lot of people will talk to their peers these days. They never used to, but many more women are talking to their peers about what they make. But talk to your male peers as well as your female peers because the men might be making more and you do not want to have a data set that's only from women. So keep that in mind, what you're making. And then when you're going in to negotiate down the road, make sure you can portray what it is that you contribute in terms of what you gain the team or your company or your broader uh, set of colleagues, not just yourself. Because the studies show that with women negotiating, when they negotiate for themselves, but really bring in the team and what they do on behalf of more than just themselves, they tend to be more effective. Hmm, Interesting.
0: What needs to change on a societal level that you've observed for women to be on an equal footing with men?
2: In all the years I've been doing this now and what I've observed and talking to people, I really think it comes down to two things. One is bias, the bias in the workplace, bias against women and what leadership looks like and the fact that men tend to gravitate toward other men when it comes to leaders. And the second is caregiving, that women still have such a disproportionate share of caregiving responsibilities at home, whether that's children or parents or just the household. And without those two things being improved upon— I don't see how we move forward. We have to actually address those two things. They're very different, and men have a big role to play in both areas. Men at work, certainly on the professional front, but men at home, personally. And so I think those are the two things we have to keep working on.
0: You know, to that point, Stacey Alister, who runs the U.S. Open, a very, very powerful woman in sport, and she's really honest about when she ran the, the WTA as CEO, she burnt out you know, she burnt out. And and part of that was, you know, family and the kids were at home and she's traveling and it was just so nonstop. But that's part of leadership. You know, when you when you reach the higher positions, the demand on your time. So what are some of your advice for women who, you know, put the pay aside, are now going into leadership roles.
2: Mm, yes. So I think that's the time you have to reassess what it is that you can handle both at work and home. I think at work, when you're taking those new leadership roles, you have to make sure you have the support around you. And that could be from the boss who gave you that promotion or new job. Ask that person, how will you be supported? Are you going to be coached by them or somebody else going forward? Or maybe there's someone you can delegate some of your work to. Hopefully you have a big team or some team around you that that can take that burden off. You can't keep doing it all as a leader. And as you take more and more responsibilities, you have to give things up and not do the things you were doing in the past. And I would say the same is true at home. You can't do everything at home. So hopefully there's a spouse, a partner, your family. You know, childcare is very expensive if you have children. So trying to get that right is not easy. But I think anything you can take off your plate at home, you should do that
0: it's time for My Two Cents. And this is a segment sponsored by JP Morgan. At the end of every show, we take a moment to reflect. Words of wisdom, and you've already offered us so many, Sam, so I'm not sure where we begin. But what would you recommend to women who are just joining the professional ranks?
2: So I would tell women to do a few things. One is, especially early on in your career, build a network. Find the people who are going to be important to you. It will be foundational for you to do a good job, to really be a top performer, to make sure you're doing your job well in terms of the nuts and bolts. But I think you also have to start thinking about who are going to be those sponsors for you, those mentors for you in the workforce who are going to really pull you through. The people are going to matter more than your skills over the long term. So think about the people that you want to meet. I think if I look back on some of my earlier years, the one thing I wish I did more of is create those early relationships and keep them and stay in touch with people and, and have them uh, throughout my lifetime. So I would say that. The second thing is just know you're not alone. So many other women are with you, also struggling, but also making a difference and making progress. So while it feels like Maybe our progress has stalled or there are not enough women at the top. There's armies and legions of women coming out of colleges, coming into the workforce. You are surrounded by more people now. And so I hope you can find some of those friends and colleagues who can get you through. Well, you're such a pro, you answered the second question in the first question. So
0: it was, what would you do differently? And as you said, it was <laughs> relationships early in your career. So let me yeah. throw in a bonus. What role do you believe women athletes can play? I mean, we we look back on 50 years ago, what Billie Jean and the women's professional tour in fighting for equal prize money and the role models. These women are role models. And now because of Title IX and because of the U.S. supporting young women team sports offer. You know, it's no longer just the individual, but team sports are really setting the tone worldwide. What can these professional athletes continue to do for women who look up to them? How can they impact women who are just
2: starting in their careers or wondering if they keep going after they've had that first baby? So first of all, I think women athletes are just so inspirational, what they achieve On the field, off the field as well. I think of the women's soccer team, even though the World Cup didn't go their way, they're champions no matter what. They're going to rebuild. I always find them inspirational. I find some of the athletes today, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, talking about mental health and the need to take care of themselves first and foremost, incredibly inspirational. I hope that convinces a lot of younger women out there it's okay to do that and take those breaks. And I also look back at rivalries out there in women's sports, and I love them because they show women can compete and still be friends. So I think of Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova and what they've done with a lifelong friendship, which is amazing. I think of the Williams sisters competing with each other through so much love and bonds. So all of those things just keep me going. And I just, I can't wait to see more women on the scene in so many different sports. That's great. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chris. Great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much once again to Rebecca Lobo and Sam Saperstein for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for listening to Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis is presented by J.P. Morgan. It's a production of Neon Hum Media and the United States Tennis Association and is hosted by me, Chris McHendry. The series producers are Mia Warren and Rob Dozier. Executive producers, Shara Morris and Matt Guerra. Production management help from Samantha Allison and Taylor Sniffin. Our theme song was composed by Asha Ivanovich. Sam Baer is our engineer. Special thanks to Tara Bell and Rashina Warren.